0: Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel and I'm Lucas and we're back to talk more about the gear side of photo and video. Our first topic today is about
1: audio and the question is what do you use to record audio and how do you like it? I mean that's a really good question. Uh, I guess I like audio. I mean we're recording a podcast and some would argue that this is an audio medium and so uh Audio ten out of ten. Yes, That's how absolutely. Rate it. <laughs> Done. Next topic. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> Any other questions? No. It's. Uh, I, I think I put this one in the show notes, and I was. I'm mostly curious to talk about, you know, maybe some of the different mics that we've used, and you know, we do we do video, we do audio, and you know, sometimes it's it's you know, oh, I got just we gonna throw a lab in there, and make it easy, and other times, you know, you got to have like the crispest version. And, you know, other times maybe you're just going to ADR it and post. I'm going to kick it back to you though. I mean, talk to me about some of the different mics you've used and, you know, maybe different audio setups that you've implemented for, you know, either video or, or you know, just audio recording, catching maybe like sound bites for, for, you know, B roll or whatever.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess first I want to say I think audio is really important. And I think that it's maybe easy for us to kind of phone it in and, I need to get this thing. I'm just going to throw a mic on real quick and do it. But I kind of think that, you know, you've got lighting and you've got audio and I, a lot of times think that's more important than what you're capturing with the camera. If you're doing video.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, if you're putting something together, like script or story, your, your visuals, all your camera stuff, uh, your lighting and then sound and sound is this huge component and just doing the sound design of creating your ambiance and all your background noises and it's like if you do sound design perfectly, then it's no one notices. But if it's off a little bit, if the lip sync is off like just like that much, then everyone, like you can immediately tell and it pulls you out of it. And so, like, getting good audio is so critical and like and it's, it's so frustrating because when you do it perfectly, no one notices.
0: You know, so I never really took it that seriously, but even for something like a YouTube video where you're not doing a you're not doing a movie, you're not doing a commercial, you know, or anything like that. You're just doing like a simple YouTube video. Even for that, I really do think it matters. And what I've kind of settled on using for most of my stuff is just kind of a simple lapel mic. Because it's really easy and I can get it close to my face. I don't have to do any complicated setup with a mic stand and trying to keep it out of the shot and all that. And so a lot of times that's all I use and i also wanted to say i think that you know really one of the most important things in audio is just getting the mic close to you mm-hmm. anything you're doing no matter what kind of mic you have if you get it close to you it's going to sound better
1: yeah for sure and it's the louder you are relative to the noise floor of the environment the easier it is to t- get that noise floor out in post and so as far as uh, lapel mics uh what are you what are you currently using so i i started out using just a simple wired
0: lapel mic that i connected up to a zoom recorder and we'll mm-hmm. probably talk more about the zoom recorder later sure that thing's super cool but i started out with that and then as time went on i liked i liked that approach but i didn't like having this big bulky recorder on me and messing with the wire and so i picked up the dji mic which is a wireless lapel mic and that's a super cool product. I really like that thing. It looks kind of like a large AirPod case when you see it. So it's this big case that flips open and it has two little it has two little transmitter units in it and then a receiver unit. And so you put the receiver on your camera and then you have two separate transmitters that you can use to record wireless audio. It has a range of maybe Two hundred and fifty meters, something like that. So you yeah, go it's, pretty far. It's
1: surprisingly good as far as range. I was watching a DP reviews review of that one, and then they were also comparing it to the Road Go, the the Road Road Wireless mic. Yeah, I and think it's the Road Wireless Go. Maybe. The DJI is surprisingly good at, at distance, especially if you have a clear visual line. Once you break that line of sight, it is closer to maybe fifty meters. But if you can if you can see the mic to the receiver, you can get pretty far away and still maintain clean audio. Yeah, and, and
0: that it just works really well. You put that little receiver in your camera and then it communicates wirelessly so you're not having to mess with cables at all. You can monitor the levels right from the receiver. So if you're behind the camera and you're recording somebody else, you can easily monitor the levels and see if they're clipping. And the little transmitters last forever. I think you get maybe 14 hours of... Wow. No, maybe it's... Maybe you get five or six hours of record time, but you can you can actually record audio onto the transmitter and you get about 14 hours of record space on the transmitter.
1: Okay, so if you're not transmitting, which is probably the more battery-intensive thing, doing some wireless transmitting of audio, if you're just recording on the recorder, you might be able to do, you know, it's 14 hours of space, but it may be able to record, you know, more, six or more hours.
0: Yeah, something like that. And and I mean, the the reason that exists too is that, that way, if you do have a transmission problem, you know, if you get out of the out of the range of what it can handle, then you do still have that recording locally on the transmitter. So you can just pull that file off and get that later.
1: That's super handy that yeah. you can record to your camera and have it synced into your audio. But then you also have that backup track just in case.
0: Well, and when you think about it, it also makes those transmitters into basically mini field recorders. Mm-hmm. You could use it completely without the receiver and you just have this little transmitter that feels like it's about the size of a pack of gum. Sure. And you can put that anywhere you want and just have a tiny little wireless recorder.
1: And those are good for line level, right? You're not going to power anything off of it, anything that needs phantom power, like a shotgun or a condenser. That's not going to work. It's mostly like if you're running it to some, like a lav or that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, that's right. So it, it has a line level input on it. Which is 1 inch. Right. Okay. You can, it does have a mic built into it as well. So if you want, you can just clip that little... Transmitter unit onto your shirt has a little magnet even, so you could uh, use that and have it just kind of attached to your shirt. And you can record with the built-in mic, or you can use a lap.
1: And it sounds surprisingly good. I'm always a little down on labs and maybe even things like this, like those the DJI mic, just because they do sound a little small and a little tinny, and they don't quite have the same like reverb or. Body that, like, a larger diaphragm type microphone might have, or you know, aren't maybe as pointed as something like a shotgun. But for if you're doing any interview work or you're doing a field field work, those, those things are great. Or, like you said, for YouTube, where I mean, you need the audio to be 80% as good as it can be, and really, maybe that last 20% doesn't super matter. It's like, why spend the time like rigging up a shotgun or trying to make You know, something not be in frame and and have to deal with a difference of a recorder and blah, blah, blah.
0: Yeah, it can solve a lot of problems. And I mean, like I said, you want to have the mic as close to you as possible. And one nice thing about labs is that it makes it really easy to do that. You don't have to care about the environment at all. I've recorded some stuff inside my house, which has tile floors And what I've noticed is that if I'm in a situation where I don't want to take the time to treat the room with sound blankets or something like that, Mm -hmm. if I try to use most normal microphones, I get a ton of echo around the house because unless the mic is very close to my face, then it's picking up a lot of echoes around the room and that sort of thing. What I've noticed is that with the lab, that's less likely to happen because it's so close to my mouth that the sound of my voice overpowers everything else and I can get rid of a lot of that echo and post pretty easily. I really like it as just kind of a default, simple option that doesn't require any setup, and it's going to work decently well in most situations, and it's just really easy to use.
1: Man, you're really selling me on that thing. Yeah. I have used the lab for a few YouTube things, and I've always run the lab to the H4N, the Zoom handy recorders which those things are fantastic i don't like at this point i don't know how how i would do anything without it i get that like you have some like larger interfaces and that sort of thing but the i have a zoom h4n you have an h5n uh it's just an h5 an h5 okay regardless like it has two xlr inputs that can also take one quarter inch and it can record in a number of different frequencies and and bit rates Um, I I forget to what it goes to but it has the two stereo mics built in, it can take line in, it can run 48 volt phantom power, 24 volt phantom power, and I can like connect anything to it and it fits in my bag and I can use it as an audio interface and it's just super super handy and for 200 bucks I mean it's hard to find something else that's going to give you that much flexibility for audio and I mean I haven't found a reason to need anything more to this point
0: so what's, what are some things that you actually find yourself using that for?
1: Yeah, so some of the stuff I've used my Zoom for, one, I'll run it in to do any sort of like audio calls on my computer or if I'll do any sort of like streaming type thing. I'll use that as my audio interface. I'll use the built-in microphones, um, which you can set to like 90 or 180 degrees uh, for like how pointed you're trying to record to. And I've used that for room audio. Like if I'm just shooting a live event and I want to get some, you know, background room audio, I'll do that. I have used it to get sound effects. So um, I did like we did a little horror short and all of the like creaky doors and cutting knives and all the sound effects that I put into that little short. I recorded with the zoom just straight on onto the zoom itself. I also use it for most of any A-roll stuff that I do. If I'm going to boom a shotgun mic overhead, I'll just run the shotgun into the zoom, and then I'll record onto that. Then I will also take the line level out, and I'll run that line level out into my camera as the scratch audio. And that can always get a little weird because the zoom has its own preamp, and the camera has its own preamp, and like trying to balance those two is is never a good idea. (laughs) But I do it anyway so you're not doing scratch audio into the camera i guess you're... i'm not i'm doing i'm doing the same audio into the camera rather than running my own scratch
0: but that's the track you're going to use is the one that you're recording if it the comes camera.
1: out right like and sometimes it doesn't because i got the gains wrong and i'm like oh shoot i guess i have to sync the audio now and then i sync the audio and and, and it's okay i basically do both so i have both so that's i mean it's, it's a lot of stuff right i've I love that thing. I use it for so so much.
0: They are super handy to have. And I mean, the reason I bought mine was because I needed something that could do phantom power. Mm-hmm. So one thing we'll probably talk about soon is that some of the mics we like require phantom power. And you can't normally supply that from your camera. So your camera can probably do plug-in power for the the little on-camera microphones, but you can't generally do the forty-eight volt.
1: Do those power. those XLR handles that you can get for like the Panasonic cameras and for the FX three? Do those support phantom I, power? I think
0: they do. Yeah. And those, those things do seem really cool. I just can't bring myself to pay for it.
1: Sure. They're like
0: three, 400 bucks sometimes for that. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems handy, but it's not that much work to sync the audio. And the zoom is a more useful thing. You can use yeah. it separately from the camera. Like you said, it's great if you need to capture some location audio. If you don't want to record video at that moment, but you just need mm-hmm. to get some audio, it's great for that. I've been thinking when we film events, I might just start leaving it in my pocket or something recording. Sure. Why you know, put it on my belt, something like I that. I
1: think what you should do is you should get like a, like a mic stand and then mount a shotgun mic to it and then strap it to your back. So it's like popping over and then pointing. And then you can run that to the zoom. And then you have this like aimed microphone, wherever your body is. And then you shift your body around to point at whatever you're shooting. There you at. go. Yeah. And I think that would work perfectly.
0: Yeah. Like a scorpion, you know, yes, you had- exactly,
1: exactly <laughs> like a scorpion. <laughs>
0: that'd be perfect you know we, we always try and keep a low profile when we're well, we just use, really use a
1: black mic stand I do not be a oh, problem okay. yeah yeah good, good point you'll be wearing all black anyways obviously that's a good point mm-hmm. yeah I don't, I don't know why i didn't <laughs> think of that yeah it's they're, they're great i love them I uh, i haven't really thought about if i would upgrade to something else but have you seen i forget who makes it i think zoom makes one but it's those like 32-bit floating point
0: recording interfaces zoom makes a couple of those they have the f6 which is that's basically a field recorder version similar to our zoom recorders that that has the 32-bit float and then there's also an f2 which is a seems like it's a smaller one i think it's made for recording Mm -hmm. uh, lab
1: mics the 32-bit float thing is nuts to me i thought i knew what it was and then i did some research on it and when i was like oh and i found out what it actually is i was even more impressed and it's basically the concept that. You know, if you assign a integer to an audio volume, right, from zero dB to whatever, a thousand dB, that's I don't I forget what it goes up to, right? You know, a logarithmic scale. The point is, the highest amount of sound pressure that the Earth's atmosphere can support, it's like a hundred something dB. And thirty-two bit floating point integer audio recorders can record more points than there are actual physical volume levels on earth (laughs) and so it's not that it it just doesn't clip but it's like is there a sound i got you (laughs) and so it's it's just like you can set like the dual gain thing which is really cool but at the end of the day like if you have a 32-bit thing like you're not gonna miss the audio unless you're in space it
0: definitely seems great i've I've thought about getting one and i mean we might need one to record this and you know, <laughs> until the point that we're recording from space. But right, obviously. Stay tuned for that. Episode 100 <laughs> will we'll be up there. But it does seem really cool. And it seems like the only downside to it that I've been able to find is that the files are bigger. Right. And I never feel like audio files being large is a problem I have. But
1: like We're talking, you know, it's 50 megabytes instead of like... Forty or 25 and
0: if you're recording video then that's sure nothing.
1: yeah you like shot this whole thing in progress, maybe and you're like well i have two terabytes of video but this 100 megabytes of audio is really killing me oh boy <laughs> exactly it's it seems like the step it seems like the path forward and
0: yeah. it feels like it's just a matter of time until everything supports that i just i want
1: that but like in my zoom like you know h4 body size right and that would be that would be perfect
0: yeah yeah maybe we'll get there
1: so i guess maybe we should talk about microphones a little bit there's some really cool ones out there i know that you know most of the youtubers are using that sennheiser nine something something the one's like a thousand dollars yeah it's like a thousand bucks and everyone swears by it because it's like the coolest microphone ever made and I just don't want to buy one, even though, like, no matter how many times I say, you know, you gotta have really good audio. Well, it's... we were just
0: talking about how you dropped your microphone four feet onto the onto a hard floor, so maybe you shouldn't buy
1: one. That's also a very good point. Uh, frequently throwing microphones on the floor. <laughs> so I have an Audio Technica AT875R, which was maybe like $185 when I bought it, maybe $150 now, and. You know, I did a bunch of research, watched a bunch of videos, listened to a lot of audio samples, and I feel like as far as shotgun mics go, it's like you get up to about like 200 bucks, and then you jump to like the five or $600 microphones, and then maybe you jump again to like the $1,000 microphones, and obviously, the more expensive you get, like diminishing returns. And to me, the mic that I have, that Audio-Technica, is like right on the edge of, this is pretty comparable to maybe even like a $500 shotgun but you're paying substantially less and it's like right at the absolute top end of that lower price bracket which is kind of why I bought it and I've been I've been pretty happy with it the noise floor could be lower it could be more sensitive the comparable road mic which is still you know a couple hundred bucks more is better but I've sure. been really happy with with audio technical so what one. do you find yourself using that for it's all you know voice stuff right it's it's talking type audio that's what i'm using it for coming up you know next week we're shooting some a-roll for an interview and i really would like to set that up over and point it in to get you know my main audio for the interview and then maybe we'll do a backup on on the dji Mm lav and that way you have both just in case but i like using it for that you know a-roll type person talking application
0: how do you normally position it when you do that do you do it over the top of the head
1: or like down below the frame what, what i've do you done find best? i've done both but it's the same thing with the lab the trick is like you have to get it as close to the thing that you're recording without getting into frame
0: yeah the the shotgun's nice because it's a pretty directional microphone Un, unlike some others that you know pick up sound in all directions you can kind of point it where you want it but mm-hmm. I know I've found when I've used them that there's still no substitute for getting close. I mean, even though it's directional, you still want that thing just as close as you can possibly get it to whatever you're recording.
1: And shotguns are great for that sort of thing, for like you're just outside of frame. You can't have the microphone like directly in front of the person or whatever you're recording because you're recording video. And so shotguns are really great for that. I mean, that's what they use for, you know, for movie sets and that sort of thing but i still think that like you know the best shotgun isn't going to be quite as comparable to like the best condenser mic and i really like condensers mics for that you know because they're they're warmer and they have more body to them and they're a better microphone but you're you never going to use that for any sort of video application
0: yeah it's it's not going to it's definitely not going to work for like a run and gun type mm-hmm. thing and most of the time when you record stuff you don't want the microphone in the shot i mean some people do the style where they have the microphone, you know, you see people like streamers and stuff, you know, they had the microphone there, but most of the time you don't want that.
1: Sure. I guess that say for like movies, they may use condenser mics if they're going to ADR it, which is like a super interesting process that I'm recently obsessed with (laughs) because (laughs) I think I was listening to, I think it was, I watched a YouTube video about it, but where they talk about the process of how they like take you know a 5 second or 10 second snip of a line and then they like put it on repeat and they put it in the actor's head uh, headphones and then they listen to themselves on repeat until they can get a cadence and it's almost like they're singing a song back to themselves where they say the line in the same inflection and in the same cadence because they're hearing it in their ears, but they do it after the fact. I feel like I would go crazy doing
0: that. Yeah, because you have I...
1: to do it like 10 times. And it's absolutely nuts. Well, and think about how long that takes after. You, know, oh, once, yeah. once you record. Once you record it, your job has just started. It's, like, really expensive. The specific video that I watched on YouTube, they were like, this whole video was 80 yard, And then they, like, went through the process of how they did it. I'm like, I would never want to do this. I'm like, you should do it. You should do it on your next video. Not happening. Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> oh, boy. That's about all I got. I, I mean, I've used other stuff like sm57s and that sort of thing but give me a zoom h4 and uh give me give me a decent shotgun mic and i'm good to go yeah the only other one i'd mention
0: i guess is just doing casual on-camera microphone stuff so oh, that's a good point you know sometimes sometimes you're shooting and you don't really want to you're not necessarily trying to film a thing you know you don't you don't have a person talking you're not doing an interview anything like that but sometimes you just want to use your camera and shoot stuff and built-in Microphones on cameras just sound terrible. Mm -hmm. That's it. Doesn't even feel worth using. A lot of times you get autofocus noise from the lens, and they just don't sound good. And so they make all kinds of little clip-on microphones that you can put on cameras. And I did want to mention that the Rode Video Micro seems like a decent one of those. I
1: like that one a lot because it doesn't have a battery. They have the Rode Video Mic Pro or whatever, and that one does have a battery. And then once you have a battery, you have to remember to turn it on. And they have the ones that will turn on automatically and turn off automatically. Because if you forget to turn it off, then your battery's going to round. Then it's not going to work. And so, yeah, I use I use the Rode Video Micro on my camera whenever I'm just shooting just to catch, like, better than on-camera audio. Yeah. And I've been pretty happy with it. Those are Super Cardio. Cardioid. Super Cardioid. Super Cardio. <laughs> <laughs> working real hard. They're Super Cardioid microphones. And then... There is one, and I cannot remember the name of it, that I've seen other people use, where it has a microphone that goes forward and backward, and it's yeah, just cardioid. That one's made by
0: uh, Deity. Yeah, yeah, those are pretty cool. So that one has, yeah, that one has two channels. One faces forward, one faces back. Because mm-hmm. the problem with the Rode Video Micro is that it only points in one direction. So if right. you're behind the camera, it's not really going to pick you, pick up mm-hmm. your talking.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like them because it's. It's especially if you're doing any sort of like vloggy stuff where you're showing someone things and pointing. It's nice to have the microphone facing you, but then you flip it around like now you've stepped in front of the camera and you're the star. You want the microphone facing you. Yeah, that's a good
0: solid option. And I think they're about 50 bucks. It's not, not that, that expensive. cheap. They are that cheap. Yeah. And as long as your camera has a microphone input, who, I, who I think ma- it's worth. Who makes them again? Rode. No, not the Rode one, the other one. Oh, the Deity one. The Deity one's pretty cheap, too. I think it's like 60 bucks, maybe, and something like that.
1: Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to, like, insta-buy one of these right here, right now. De-
0: Deity popped up a few years ago, and mm-hmm. they're, they, they definitely don't have the name recognition that Rode does, but they have some good stuff. I see people using their shotgun mics, and I think they make pretty good products.
1: They have a V-Mic D3, which is $60, but then they have a V-Mic D3 Pro, which is $140. Now, is
0: that, like is that like youtubers with macbook pros where if you're a youtuber you have to get the pro one
1: i think i think that legally if you're making money using your camera and you have one of these on there you have to buy the uh, pro. okay faa yeah. will
0: come after you if you don't exactly yeah, yeah.
1: no it's if it, there's like a survey or something in here and they're like are you gonna make money with this yeah gotta buy the and pro you, version you can't say no because maybe you will i I'm,
0: mean i don't get out of bed unless i'm doing it to make money right so yeah
1: exactly yeah you know, dollar dollar bill yeah I'm going to look at this a little closer, and if I buy one, I'll let you know. All right. That sounds good.
0: <laughs> I think that's uh, just about enough on audio. All right. What else are we talking about?
1: Well, we wanted to talk a little
0: bit about camera sensors. Again?
1: But we just talked about camera sensors. I know.
0: it I can't stop you. It's all you want to talk about is camera sensors. (laughs) Nobody else cares about camera sensors. And you're just like, let's talk more about camera sensors.
1: (laughs) What if we talk more about it? (laughs) Like, just a little bit. (laughs) What if we
0: just rename this the Camera Sensor Podcast? I mean, that'd be great. I'm not arguing. There are five people out there that would love to listen to that. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, man, let's... Let's well, just get more into it. Lucas, talk about Fabian for a little bit.
0: Well, maybe maybe instead of focusing on camera sensors, we should focus on Fuji cameras because that's something we haven't talked enough about.
1: <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's the the Fuji camera gear podcast. All of a sudden, <laughs> sure um, feels that way. I mean, everyone else is talking about Sony, right? You yeah, gotta gotta, you bounce gotta it Speak out. what you want into the world.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> put a little more something else on the other side of the scale.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. Oh boy. So we we wanted to talk, I guess, about. X-Trans and Bayer sensors, those are definitely terms I've heard, but let's talk a little bit about what that means, yes. and so then we want to talk about what the differences between them are.
1: I put this on there specifically, because Fuji came out with the X-H2S, and then they came out with the X-H2, and as you and I both know, people are just abandoning their cameras in the streets to get these. They're taking their Canon and their Sony gear, and they're just throwing it in the trash. Not, not because, even trying to sell it. No, it's useless on the used market, because no one wants it, because... Everyone is switching to Fuji, and so I, probably I don't know if that's true. one hundred percent true. Uh-huh. Don't check. You don't. Don't worry about verifying it. It just just believe me. That is one hundred percent true. So, like, maybe we should talk about X Trans a little bit and Bear, I guess, and now if, if we have to. <laughs> oh darn! Right. So, a like, quick recap on like what's like what's the big deal? What's different about this? There's other sensor types, but like the predominant ones that are in use by major camera manufacturers are bear type and x strands, And whenever we're talking about those two things, we're specifically talking about the layout of the sub pixels. So every pixel has some combination of red, green, and blue that they're, it's using to capture light. And when blue light hits a red pixel, nothing happens. Blue light has to hit a blue pixel for it to be read by the sensor, and so like that,
0: that was a really confusing statement.
1: <laughs> <laughs> let me let me try that again. Right, so you got you got like you got subpixels, right? Um, and yeah, red, blue, and green. And if green light hits a red subpixel, it doesn't read it. But if it hits a green subpixel, it does. There you go. S- that's that's why you have them like that. And so you have to arrange these in some some pattern. And so, the way a bear is laid laid out, it has alternating green and blue subpixels on one line. So, green, blue, green, blue, green, blue. And then on the line below it, it has alternating red and green. So, red, green, red, green, red, green. And the way that's configured, blue, you know, if you're looking at a blue pixel, it's got four greens touching it and four reds touching it. And any, like, generally any, like, camera pixel, one green subpixel will be in, you know, whatever, like... Four, six or nine camera pixels. That's bare, right? X-Trans is laid out differently in that um, you have four green pixels that are all touching each other and so you have this like big green square and then you have uh, around it an array of red and green and so if you're looking at a line it's like blue green green red green green blue and then the line below it is red green green blue green green red Right,
0: I'm sure everyone
1: can perfectly visualize that in their minds,
0: but we will put some pictures in the show notes. Now that you
1: have that exactly in your head, don't look at the show notes. I described it perfectly. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they've got all that. Point is, the X-Trans has 55% 55 of it is green. And 50% of a bear sensor is green. And I know what you're thinking. Lucas, why so much green? Yeah, why isn't it 33%? Right? So... When you look at, like, visible light, green is, like, smack in the middle. Like, you're, you go from blue to green to red. And because green is in the middle, that's where most of the visible light is. That's where most of the information is. Mm-hmm. And so what these camera sensors do is they use the green to determine the brightness in addition to determining the color green. And so your your green pixels are deciding, like, for this one little tiny spot on my, on my picture, is it how dark is it? How bright is it? And so... For x because you have more green, then your micro contrast between pixels, like how bright is this pixel compared to how bright is this pixel, is better or more refined than compared to a bare sensor because it has less green, so less light data. And Fuji claims, which obviously 100% true, uh, they claim that by having that better micro contrast, you have a more perceived resolution. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, all all <laughs> this sounds
0: true, and I'm sure nobody would debate these yeah. things.
1: <laughs> Nobody's going to disagree with me. Let, me. let me say it with a straight face. You have a more of a perceived resolution at the same megapixel. And so Fuji says, look, look at these pictures. They are sharper than your pictures at the same megapixel resolution. Because X-Trans, because we have more green. The other thing with X-Trans, and the way Fuji puts it, is that the arrangement of the pixels is more random which is not it's it's a specific pattern <laughs> but because because it's quote unquote random the way that uh grain appears right whenever you boost that iso up you get a lot of noise you know because because whatever reasons you get more noise and that noise is just you know data that's not representing Pixel for pixel or whatever, and so the noise from an X-trans sensor, because it's more "quote unquote" random, it looks more film-like. <laughs> like you, can't, uh-huh. you can't really hear the huge quotation marks <laughs> that I'm creating, but this is like this is the argument: is the Fuji's like it looks more filmy because of the randomization "quote unquote." of the layout of the sensor versus bare where the noise looks very uniform. And you hear this a lot from reviewers. I mean, you go watch like any of the XH2S stuff. They'll talk about how the noise performance and blah 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 and that even at higher ISOs they prefer the noise out of the Fuji cameras. And it's because it's it's a little more random and it looks a little a little nicer. So those are two like pretty great advantages to X-Trans.
0: Does the increase in randomness that you mentioned also affect moray is that, no, I'm not saying that right. absolutely
1: yeah yeah for sure it it definitely affects moray so moray is what happens when a light when a light comes in and hits hits a set of pixels say you you shine a red light or like a, you have a stream of red light that hits a bare sensor or an x-trans sensor it doesn't matter if that light crosses like a blue pixel and some green pixels and then a red pixel the camera has to decide what color it is like it hit a red but before it hit that red, whenever it hit the green, was it still red, or was it a different color? So they have to do this demosaicing thing, where it decides what color is what color, and then creates the image. And whenever you have really fine patterns, it can be very hard for the camera to determine that, and so then you get these like blotches of color. So that's things like if you're wearing, if somebody's wearing a striped shirt, right. sometimes you see that. Yeah, you can get like these weird color blotches. And Fuji's claim is that because of the superiority of the X-trans layout. More Moray is significantly better on an X-Trans sensor compared to a bare sensor.
0: Now, you've used Fuji cameras a lot more than I have. Would you say that's true?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> it is a total BS. <laughs> and when you look at, you know, a lot of examples, it is highly dependent upon the pattern. Because if you have, if you have a certain pattern that, you know, matches up, poorly with x-trans it's going to be worse on x-trans versus bear it just depends on what you're shooting so it isn't really better on one than the other but it is the reason that when the xt1 came out fuji was like we don't have to put an anti-aliasing filter on this because the moray is so much better on x-trans and so when you compare it to these 16 megapixel bear cameras that have to have anti-aliasing filters then our camera is just sharper and so they're like, look at this, we don't have anti-aliasing filters, and we have better contrast. and buzzword, 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 X-Trans. <laughs> and just a real quick recap on anti-aliasing filters, what that does is it essentially blurs the, blurs the light a little bit so that it hits more pixels. Aliasing and, and Moray is, is a big problem on bear sensors of lower resolution. Mm. If You're shooting on bear that's like under 13 or 16 megapixels. Mm-hmm. You're going to get way more Moray than if you're shooting something with 40 megapixels. And so, this whole the whole argument about like doing anti aliasing filters and X train's better at anti aliasing, blah, 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 all well, that doesn't really matter anymore was because of at least higher resolution, full frame bear camera sensors.
0: So it sounds like you would say that the the noise being less uniform is a tangible benefit that you've seen reviewers point out. Maybe you've seen it yourself too. Yep. But it seems like the other stuff maybe is not as clear.
1: Oh, it's just, it's just, it's a little markety and it's really hard to test because all these camera makers, their demosaicing algorithms are proprietary Mm. because that is like, that's their bread and butter. That's what they sell you we're just going to come out and say look we did the do mosaic thing we did this film simulation and i'll look at classic chrome and no one else is doing this no one else can do this so you can't really get an apples to apples
0: comparison because there's so much else going on i the mean maybe process. maybe
1: if they made cameras we could see <laughs> oh yeah. called iphone <laughs> anyway yeah but like we should talk about like the negatives. Well, yeah, I was X-tran. gonna,
0: I was gonna ask. Cause, I mean, all this sounds great, and I mean, it makes sense at least. And even if you can't really see those advantages, they at least theoretically make sense. But mm-hmm. what are the downsides? There's got to be, there's got to be a reason that not everyone does it this way.
1: So the big downsides are demosaicing X-Trans is harder computationally. Even Fuji will tell you that it takes 30% more time, more power computationally, in a, to demosaic an X-Trans image. And then addition to that, because of the difficulty that there is in, you know, you have these green pixels that are closer together and that are packed differently, you can run into more problems with color determination. So, like, if if red light is, is cross, passing across an X-Trans sensor, it could hit a blue and then green, green, and then red. So it could hit four subpixels before it ever hits a red red pixel to know what color it is. And so some of the problem that Fuji has to overcome is if it's like someone's smiling in a picture, how do you tell where the teeth end and the lips start? Mm. And it's things like that, that people have complained in past about like the original Fujis, like the X-T1 where like you had these waxy skin tones and that Mm. sort of thing. Um, And so it can be, that can be a problem Uh, in my experience with like having shot with X-T3, Thousands, thousands of images. I haven't really had that problem. I haven't really had waxy skin tones, and I haven't really had anything where they were like, something was obviously the wrong color because of bad demosaicing. I think Fuji's basically got it figured out at this point. They've been yeah. doing it for 10 years. Maybe the newer and, like, cameras are better with that. Yeah, and so, like, maybe not so much a problem, but it does mean like. You go to a computational thing, right? So, you know, if it's harder to demosaic a Fuji image, does that mean, like, you're never going to see a high megapixel Fuji camera sensor? Or, are like, is it going to always be compromised whenever it comes to, like, mm. shooting, speeding, that sort of mm. thing? It feels like it would, but then at the same time, you go and you're like, okay, what cameras right now have, like, the most, you know, shots per second in photo? And it's an X-H2S or maybe a Z9. But it's probably an X-H2S. I'm not biased. <laughs> And then if you look at APS-C cameras, 40 megapixels, right? That's the highest resolution APS-C camera out there. And so it feels like Fuji is having to, you know, they're pushing the limits to prove that, you know, despite the potential shortcomings of X-Trans, they're making it work.
0: Now, do they use that on the GFX uh, medium format cameras too, or is it just on APS-C? GFX
1: is bare. Okay. And the thought behind that is because of that extra computational power. They're trying to read 100 megapixels and rolling shutter is already a problem on right, okay. that many lines. And if on top of that, you have to read, it would take forever to read an image. Like you just, you just can't do it. I, it's, that's why it's so surprising that the 40 megapixel XH2, like, mm-hmm. and then the, the scan speeds on that sensor are like one over 188th of a second is the, is the rolling shutter rate. And that's it's still pretty good. Yeah. One more thing. And this, this I have seen, and it's kind of a huge pain. Uh, is the Lightroom warming thing. Mm.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you what it was like to work with those images and if that was any different.
1: So Capture One works with Fuji and they have worked with their software together with Fuji's, you know, JPEG image processing and whatever. And when you develop your RAW files in Capture One, they're going to look the best. They're going to look the closest to the Fuji JPEGs. Whatever secret sauce Fuji is doing to create their JPEGs, if you're shooting a Fuji camera, I would say that like, you got to use the JPEGs unless you're just really, really into raw processing. But most of the fun and the excitement about using something with like the manual dials and all this stuff is like you're going to shoot the picture, and then they got the picture and you don't have to go edit it because you have the film simulations and like their JPEG processing image is just so good. But Lightroom, huh, is built around every camera, right? And so they've really built it towards bare sensors and the noise reduction, which has been optimized for bare sensors is trying to compensate for the worse micro contrast. And so whenever you bring in a photo into Lightroom, by default, is applying a certain amount of noise reduction in order to you know do its processing. Now that's not that's not just raw photos, right? Like that'll happen with JPEGs too. Mm-mm. No, specifically raw, okay. because it's taking the sensor data from the camera and then converting it into a picture. Okay. So all the processing, the demosaic and everything, is happening in Lightroom for the development instead of in the Fuji camera image em- engine. And so. For those RAW files in Lightroom, you kind of have to back off the noise reduction, which is a little counterintuitive because usually you want to clean up your images, but you actually need to do it less with the Fuji RAWs in order to avoid this, like, worming problem. Hmm. And basically what that is is, like, you pull in any Fuji image into Lightroom and you crank that noise reduction up and then you zoom in to, like, 800%, like, all the details look wormy. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just Hmm. this weird, like, contrasty painted image effect and it looks really bad. <laughs> and so like fighting that in Lightroom has been a huge pain for me because I prefer, I prefer Lightroom. I prefer it over Capture One. But I want to shoot Fuji. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of tough. So that's that's one reason I kind of prefer the JPEGs. And I think like there's a few different things you could do. Like you can there's things like a Radiant Engine that will convert your your Fuji RAWs into uh, DNG files. And I think that you can use that you can use the Fuji well, there's a Fuji app where you can convert RAWs to JPEGs using the camera's processing engine where you plug it into your computer. And your computer uses the actual processor on the camera to do that RAW processing. So there's, like, ways around it. Um, but really, at the end of the day, it's a matter of just, like, you don't have to do as much noise reduction mm-hmm. for XTrans files because they have better microcontrast.
0: So, what do you find yourself doing? You mentioned that you think shooting JPEGs makes more sense. And then you also mentioned that if you shoot RAWs, you can back off the noise reduction. But for you, when you shoot photos with Xtrans, what do you typically do? If
1: I'm shooting something that really matters, I will shoot in RAW plus JPEG. And then if the JPEGs are perfect, which obviously they're going to be nine times out of ten, I'm not bragging. But for that other 1 out of 10, uh, I'll, I'll bring those RAWs into Lightroom and I'll maybe change the change the color profile and, and you know, I'll back off on the noise reduction. And I, I have a, a few, like, you know, presets that, that I use to, not like custom presets that I bought off of YouTube or whatever, but just like really simple noise reduction and um, sharpness settings that I'll just apply to a photo and kind of cleans it up. And really, it's like that worming stuff. You got to really get in there and start uh, pixel peeping. Yeah, you said like zoom in to 800%. <laughs> yeah, like you got to really get in there to notice. And I think that, you know, most people aren't going to really notice or going to care. I do like shooting and bringing things raw into Lightroom because they have gotten their color tuning for the Fuji profiles pretty close. And so it's cool to be able to shoot something in like Classic Neg and then be able to change it to Provia in in post you could also do that on camera you can use like you can just pull up your your fuji camera and if you have shot it in raw you can just change the color profile oh, using cool. the in-camera raw conversion and so you're never like stuck with it and if you really like the jpegs i mean it's like shoot jpeg plus raw right the only thing you're wasting is, is extra space i guess you you lose some burst rate right mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't
0: know i don't know
1: yeah you do you will. it's not so much you lose burst rate it's more of buffer, buffer oh. time. And so you run out of uh, buffer space and, and you can only shoot for, you can shoot for less time in burst. I know it's, it's mostly, was like a, it's mostly was like an explanatoria of, uh, of X-Trans. <laughs> and so, and less, less, of like an X-Trans versus bear. Well, I, but, I was,
0: I was going to ask though. I mean, with all that said, and with, with all your experience, do you think it matters? I mean, like, is the reason that you like Fuji cameras because of X-Trans and do you feel like that actually factors into your buying decision? That's a that's an
1: excellent question. I like Fuji cameras for a lot of reasons, and I, I mean, we haven't even talked about the lenses. So because you have more green is a uh, has a longer wavelength than red or blue, and so because of that, it can penetrate through the lenses through glass better. And because of that, Fuji has designed their lenses around their X Trans sensors. So that they can take advantage of that extra green and extra light penetration and sharpness, and so because they've like designed their their lenses around that and like all the fancy buzzwords and marketing and this that, and the other, you can get like some really sharp, good images out of Fuji glass. Okay,
0: I was I was going to ask what the impact was to that. So it's. You can get well, sharper Well, supposedly or...
1: it's like maybe you can stick an extra element in there mm. to, you know, make it better. Or maybe you get like an extra .1 on your T-stop or something. Okay. So it's more light, more better, or whatever.
0: Mo' light, mo' better.
1: Yep. <laughs> but like, I like I like Fuji, one, because of, because of the JPEG processing. And like, we can talk about film simulations all day and what our favorite ones are. I know, I know. But... <laughs> Like the JPEGs just look good, and I liked shooting on the XT3 because of because of the dials, right? Mm-hmm. And like people talk about that, but when you're learning photography, and you're learning like the exposure triangle of shutter speed, and ISO, and aperture, being able to just have those three right there, and you just like turn the dial, that's just how my brain works. And so when you when I pick up my my XT3, and I'm like, oh, I just turn these three dials, and then I can get the image that I want. I'm not even thinking about like oh, I need to be shooting in aperture priority, or you are going to shoot in program now, and then I'm going to scroll this wheel until it looks right. It's like, no, oh, this is this is a fast-moving subject. I'm going to turn my my shutter speed dial. And, oh, I turned it three clicks, so now I need to turn this one three clicks because they're both at one-third stop, and then, boom, my exposure didn't change, but I, I mashed everything up. It's how my brain works. And so for the hardware dials and for the JPEG processing, I, lo- I love Fuji. And I just I guess X-Trans is kind of a, a bonus on top of that. I would say that maybe X-Trans isn't for everybody. I think that Lightroom is really geared towards bare sensors. And if you're a big Lightroom person and mm-hmm. that's how you're processing your photos and you're shooting a lot of things in RAW or you're shooting a lot of things professionally and doing it in RAW, maybe a high megapixel bare sensor makes more sense. And you probably want to be shooting Canon or Sony or Nikon. The Moray, I think... I mean, like, it kind of depends on what you're shooting, but you could run into situations where the more is worse on Fuji cameras. And Fuji doesn't make anti-aliasing filters on their cameras. They did make a version of the 5612, which is like the 5612 something something APD. Mm, and that yeah. one has that extra filter on there. And so it is a third stop darker than the normal one. And it's more expensive. Weird. But if you're specifically shooting portraits and you need something that is going to be able to capture those, you know, finer fabric detail things without moray or, or, or <laughs> technical term. Like, uh, th- you have to get that lens. And I feel like that lens specifically is an omission by Fuji. The Mori is kind of still a problem on yeah, X-Trans. It's,
0: may- maybe it's better in some cases, but it's not like it's just magically solved on yeah, X-Trans. Absolutely not.
1: So I think that X-Trans is a little weird and it's a little one-off. And it has some really cool advantages with like the film grain and the micro contrasts and that sort of thing. And, like, if you're shooting, like, something that has a lot of greens in it, like you're shooting landscape, I think you're going to maybe get, like, a better, brighter image out of a Fuji camera compared Hmm. to maybe a bear camera. Interesting. But if you're shooting, like, people, and you're mixing a lot of those reds and blues, and you're getting skin tones, I mean there probably honestly makes more sense.
0: It's like it probably shouldn't be the only factor. It's probably not even the most important factor in
1: your I mean decision. no one's even thinking about it. Like they're yeah. like, "Oh, this is x trans." I don't know what does that even mean? And you're like, "Well, look at this chart of sub pixels and then you lose everybody." Yep. <laughs> like no one else is listening right now.
0: <laughs> maybe that's true, but it is interesting to kind of think about how these things work and even if we're not necessarily buying cameras based on it, mm-hmm. maybe it helps you understand what you're seeing a little bit better and there is some tangible useful stuff
1: in there like i mean the stuff about processing raws in lightroom that's yeah and like it's a it's a lot of money to invest in a new camera system i mean like you're buying all these lenses and you're buying these bodies and maybe you're investing into it long term and like you know you're gonna have more later i mean it doesn't necessarily have to be like you could buy like an x100v as a point and shoot and then just you know a lot of people love that and a lot of people who talk about fuji are like yeah i use fuji for anything but professional work which i don't understand but that's neither here nor there um a lot of people just shoot fuji to have it because of the joy of using their cameras but yeah it's like you got to know what you're getting into for the lightroom stuff and you know some of the other things about you know like what the grain looks like and and that sort of stuff is kind of a you know it's a good thing to know yeah i well. mean knowing knowing all that and like talking about bears and extrans trans and i mean you recently switched to fuji i mean. I don't know how much of this you knew going into it. I mean, is that, does it kind of like affect your thoughts on yeah. on that camera and like how you might use it? I mean, I I knew that it was a different sensor
0: type. I knew, you know, maybe 5 to 10% of what we just talked about. And honestly, it's just when you're picking a camera, there's so many things that factor into it mm-hmm. that you can't you can't be that picky about it. You know, you can't you can't say well, I want this Fuji camera, but I'm going to pick the one that has a Bayer sensor instead. Like You don't have that choice. Like You have to pick a whole system. I mean, some of the things you said were things that drew me to Fuji, like having really good JPEGs out of camera. Mm -hmm. I like that the lenses tend to be smaller and still seem to be optically really good. And those are things that I think the sensor impacts, but I was looking at them more on the merits of those features rather than knowing, you know, necessarily what does the sensor do and So it's interesting to me to hear kind of what goes into that. And it kind of explains some of the characteristics of the cameras that I like. But I guess I didn't really consider
1: it that much when I was buying. I do feel like that Fuji asks a lot of you in buying into their system. Like you got to be into, you know, have to, but like you got to be into the film simulation thing. And it's like we're doing this whole totally different sensor style. And we got these physical controls and we don't make full frame cameras. We only make these small travel size you know, APS-C and, like, they all have, like, really great video specs and, like, I love it. But they're really asking, like, you to buy into the whole, like, you know, Fuji rah-rah-rah. And it feels like maybe, like, Canon and Nikon are more, like, the default. Yeah. And then you have your Sonys, which is your do-everything, pack all the features in that they can.
0: I mean, it's definitely not that the cameras are any less capable. I mean, I don't think either of us would have bought a Fuji camera if we felt like it could do less than a canon or an icon, but it is more like there's a workflow that you have to use and there's a there's a way you have to approach using a camera mm-hmm. that's a little bit different. It doesn't necessarily completely change how you use it, but if you're swimming upstream constantly on it, then you're yeah. probably doing it wrong.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you gotta find the thing that works for you. I always come back to Fuji despite, you know, all the things I love about X trans and all that stuff. It always has felt like the most cost efficient thing for what you get like you get the most bang for your buck out of something like an xt4 where you're spending eighteen hundred dollars and you can shoot you know whatever 4k 60 and 10 bit internal and blah 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 i mean really i'm just talking about video stuff but if you're if you're a photo guy and you're like i need a 40 megapixel camera or i need a 50 megapixel camera go get a full frame camera you're just like APS-C is not is not where you go need go to go get be. an xh2 it's, yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. It's a really good point, but it's I don't know. But like, if you're really into video stuff and your budget is three thousand bucks or less, it's hard not to go with Fuji. It's uh, there's an argument to be made for that. I'm sure a lot of people would disagree. But I think a lot of people would disagree. I'm I'm, re- I'm really really selling it. I guess. I mean, most people in that situation they're going to pick up a Sony. I mean, we talked about E-mount lenses, and I mean, I I'm of the strong belief that like E-mount is one of the better lens platforms to get into it feels like the one that has the most promise.
0: i mean that's the downside to fuji i think is that we've recently started seeing more third-party lenses for it and we both have third-party lenses for fuji but mostly you're stuck with what fuji makes and the, the vast majority of your lens choices are things that they make you know we talked about adapters on one of our previous episodes and that's another option but You know, unless you want to buy an adapter and adapt all of your lenses, Mm -hmm. it really is kind of part of that thing where you're buying into an ecosystem and everything's just different with Fuji. It's like they've got their own lenses and and they've got their own sensor and
1: they've got their own camera control stuff. It's just, it's all. Fuji has like a weird market share problem. Whenever they came out with the X-H1, they backported a lot of the cool video features to the X-T2 at the time. This is 2017. But since then, they've been really pushing all their video stuff. But before that, they were basically a photo camera, and so all of their lenses are geared towards photo, and so they don't have quite the right linear motors motors for video autofocus use. And they don't have that many and, lenses with uh, OIS. Yeah, and they bas- they had basically two lenses with OIS or three, and none of their cameras until that you know XT four had usable in body image stabilization. Mm-hmm. Um, argument could be made for the XH one, but whatever. And so it's like they see all the video use and they see all the talk about Sony. And so they're pushing really hard on those video specs. But their lenses have fallen behind. And it wasn't until maybe 2019, 20, no, it was after that. It was like 2020, 2021, where they said, okay, we're opening up, we're sharing our autofocus standard. And people like Tamron and Sigma can just take our math and and use our autofocus stuff. And so that that was the big stop for Sigma and Tamron. Like, why would they make you know, lenses for Fuji if they don't have autofocus. And so it feels like Fuji's like with the new eighteen to one oh five power zoom and a lot of their new you know, highly resolving lenses like the thirty three one four, they're trying really hard to turn it around and say, like, we're remaking all of our lenses. We're making them so they're good for video. We're making video focused lenses and we're making things that can resolve for these really high resolutions and we're letting third party come in and start making their own stuff. And so it feels like you know give it four or five years and you know fuji may really turn this around and be a pretty legitimate competitor to someone like sony but
0: i don't know that's gonna be really interesting to see i'm 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 here for it yeah keep, keep making cameras yeah you are <laughs> you are here for it
1: yeah i'm just gonna put on my, my fuji brand ambassador hat which i don't have <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah let's do it yeah yeah <laughs> Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about today? Uh, I mean, we could talk about more about uh, camera sensors. I bet, I <laughs> bet you could. Talk about, we could talk about lenses some more. <laughs> uh, there's some pretty cool uh, anamorphic lenses from Laowa that we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, well, maybe we could talk about the Aerie 35. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I think we've gone on long enough for today, so we might have to save those for next time. All right. That's going to do it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed it, we'd encourage you to rate us on iTunes and tell your photography friends about the show. Also, check out our website at cameragearpodcast.com to learn more or send us feedback and questions. We'll be back with more next week.